Good afternoon, everyone. Waminjika and welcome to M Pavilion. Thank you so much for joining us on a somewhat damp, blustery Melbourne afternoon. We acknowledge the Bunwurrung as the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet, and we pay our respects to their ancestors and elders, past, present, and into the future. Today, we welcome two guests. One is an international artist, uh, Cambodian artist, Anita, Anita Yu Ali, who is based in New York, but from Cambodia. And she has mesmerized audiences at the recent APT last weekend with her uh, Buddhist bug performance. She will be in conversation with Sarah Bond. So Anita is an artist, a scholar, and a global agitator. A first-generation Muslim Khmer woman born in Cambodia and raised in Chicago, she investigates the artistic, spiritual, and political collisions of a hybrid transnational identity through her installations and performances. She ex has exhibited at the Palais de Tokyo, the Fukuoka Asian Art Museum, and the Musée d'Art Contemporaine in Lyon, She's also a collaborative partner with Studio Revolt, a trans-nomadic artist-run media lab based in Phnom Penh. She's the winner of the Sovereign Asian Art Prize and is currently the 2015-16 McGill Visiting Assistant Professor in International Studies at Trinity College. Anita will be in conversation with Sarah Bond, who has over 20 years experience working in the visual arts craft industry as a maker, a producer and a curator. Currently, she is Director of Visual Arts at AsiaLink, where she oversees Australia's largest international exhibition touring program. She's curated several international exhibitions, including one Ford Flock Propagation at the Naka Nojo Biennale, Dylan Martorell at Kochi Missouri's Biennale, Selectively Revealed, Run Artist Run, and Under My Skin. She was also the Australian curator of the Kwandu Biennale 2012 Artist in Wonderland. I would particularly like to thank my ex-comrades at AsiaLink, Leslie Orway, Sarah Bond, Louise Joel, and Warissa. I'd like to thank Anita Archer for bringing this opportunity to us. Anita, um, has organised an exhibition of Anita's work, which opened last night at Bright Space in Securitas. So I do hope you can get down and see it. And please enjoy today's conversation. Thank you, Natalie. Can everyone hear me okay? Great, okay. Um, thank you all for braving the wind, rain, sun, wind, rain, sun of Melbourne and um, coming here to hear a little bit more about Anita Uali. Um, as Natalie mentioned, Anita is in Australia as a featured artist at the Asia-Pacific Triennale at Quag Goma up in Brisbane, and which is on until the 10th of April, I think, so mm -hmm. quite some time for everyone to get, to get up there and see um, the work and see Anita's work if you haven't had a chance to do so. So today we thought um, we're having quite an informal discussion um, and introducing you to Anita's practice. And obviously, um, what you may have seen um, plastered on a lot of um, collateral, mm. including the cover of um, uh, the APT catalogue, is Anita's work. 
So uh, coined the poster girl of APT8, I think, on a few occasions. Mm. It's a real pleasure to have her here in Melbourne for the first time, I believe, which is fantastic. I should also mention um, there is, through Anita Archer, a screening happening at Federation Square of three video works that are cyclical over the next uh, three days, two days, two weeks, yeah. sorry. So I'm, I'm sure at different times. So please try and um, find out what they are. Um, so I guess a uh, starting point um, for today's conversation is The Buddhist Bug, mm. um, which was a performance work that occurred on two occasions up at the APT opening weekend and uh, The Buddhist Bug Into the Night commissioned video work. So I thought uh, we might start talking about the bug series and giving a view of, of what a bug's life is like. So could you tell us a little bit more about what that project mm-hmm. is? So. The most ambitious work that I have to date started in 2009 in the US and it's titled The Buddhist Bug. Um, And this is a body of work that initially began as um, some of my graduate work um, at the School of the Art Institute in Chicago. And it was just, it came at a time when I had just given birth to my first child, a baby girl, and I was thinking about all of these um, very layered issues related to my identity, and that identity spans, um, you know, multiple parts of me. Um, It's it's a diasporic identity in which um, I'm bicultural, I'm between places, I don't have you know, one place that I call home, that even that um, idea is is elusive uh, to someone who, who is diasporic. Um, and then my, um, my identity as a religious person, as a spiritual person is also something in flux. It is, uh, I was raised for generations as a Muslim and around uh, communities of various Muslim uh, people. And, uh, but yet that identity is, is coming from Cambodia, a country that's 96% Muslim, a country where during the, the Khmer Rouge genocide, Muslim people and especially, especially people of the Cham identity were persecuted. My father should have never survived. Everything that is chronicled in the history of Cambodia in relationship to this horrific time of war and persecution and civil conflict says that my father should have never survived for he was a teacher, therefore he was educated and targeted. He was Muslim, um, which was something unacceptable um, in the time of the Khmer Rouge and he was male. And so all these things compound to creating me and the, the many works that come out of this um, search for personal history, this search for belonging and understanding. Um, so all of this is to say that, you know, I carry these layers of identities with me as I'm creating works and they're never easily separated from the work. And so 
the other layer in 2008 was that I had my first child and navigating motherhood for the first time, which is a very complex terrain for those of us who are going through it or have gone through it. And, and I was navigating graduate work you know, at the same time. And so I just had this moment um, where the pieces started to come together and it was, it was, you know, thinking about this creature, this entity that I would um, embody. And I didn't exactly know the structure until we were gifted with this child's play tunnel. This play tunnel was this plastic um, meshed netting similar to an Ikea laundry bag. I'm sure they got the idea from that, the child's play tunnel. Um, and I, it was so, it was easily collapsible, so you could like store it easily. And then you can expand it to being pretty long and it would be stiff. And the child can just play through it. So it's like a tunnel. And I thought this was an amazing thing I was looking at. And I kept looking at it and thus began to sketch what became the Buddhist bug eventually. And so I, you know, it's, it's not a copy of the tunnel at all. My shape is very different. My shape is made of concentric circles versus coiled, uh, giant coiled spring. And so I created a prototype and I knew that the bug, which I didn't have the name for what it was in my sketches at the time, but I knew that it would be orange and, I, and, and that's because my multiple trips back to Southeast Asia um, as an observer, because I went there maybe three to four times before relocating there in 2011, and I could not escape being enwrapped by the sea of saffron, by the orange robes that I had experienced in Thailand, in Vietnam, in Laos, and then finally, when I would journey over to Cambodia. And so this really made an impact um, on me and was a visual cue that sort of never left my periphery. And it was that, that idea, that realization that, wow, like this, this is why my parents pre preserved the Islamic culture and identity for us in America. It's because in Cambodia, they were surrounded and enveloped by this culture of Buddhism, this way of life that um, also, um, you know, gave identity to Cambodian people in terms of the way they are and their politics and their culture. But my family was a very small ethnic minority in that sea. And that, so that realization, again, was another spark that became the Buddhist bug. And if you look at the entity, you know, she is all encompassing in this orange. And, um, and she has references to Islam. The, the head is completely covered where you can only see the face and it's modeled specifically after um, a hijab uh, that I had found. And I was looking at various headscarves, but that was the one that I was really interested in modeling. Um, and she's in full hijab, which means she is completely covered except for her feet and ankles and her face showing. So in terms of adhering to a sense of modesty in dress um, and following Islamic hijab, 
um, which are just rules of modesty, then she definitely embodies that. Um, and so, you know, she's a curious entity in that she can collapse very easily and get coiled up into this, this, this sort of ball of a creature. But then she can also expand into this very lengthy sort of bridge-like creature that takes up a lot of space, which is, again, another layer of the metaphor that I'm teasing out in the work. Um, as a refugee, which is another identity as a result of war and conflict and that, that um, fleeing of, of country, that also marked my body. That, that realization that my parents in, and myself survived a very terrible time in our political history that all we had, <clears throat> all we had with us were the clothes on our backs, if anything. And some people came, you know, not with a lot of clothes when they arrived at the border camps when the borders reopened in 1979 after the Khmer Rouge was ousted. Um, that, again, it marked my body and informed this particular body of work and my work with textile, which is I love have creating something out of soft textile so that it can be folded up and collapsible and physically carried on my body and then I can unfold it and it take up the space and um, occupy and really change the landscape of where I'm at. So. Mm. I'm interested in the landscape and the positioning of the Buddhist bug. Um, I saw it twice for the first time up in Brisbane, one being in the water mall at Quagomi, so you, a lot of you know it's almost like a stage um, where it can, can be hard for people to engage, and another time um, at, the, at the Bodhi tree um, outside the entrance of, of Goma. So, um, I mean, I'm not sure how much you had to uh, discuss about the location up in Queensland, having probably not been there before, but you've performed this work, um, you've documented this work since 2009. Um, does a location um, influence interaction with the audience? Because you are inviting, mm -hmm. it's a work that invites um, in the performing state for people to interact. Yeah, so that's a really good question. and. Um the prototype um, that I created in 2009, um, you know, I, I, I took, I made this um, installation costume piece with a really young fashion designer that was helping me uh, manufacture it. And then um, we took her out, the bug, uh, initially into the woods mm -hmm. in Chicago where I was uh, raised. And I, I really wanted her to be around nature. I thought the juxtaposition of the the orange against some greenery would be um, sort of a nice moment in an urban setting. We have some visitors. <laughs> um, but the, the work never took off in that terrain. It didn't quite feel right. And I was still working it out. And so I had, when I moved to Cambodia in 2011 um, to engage in more research, um, I had carried the prototype with me thinking, well, perhaps I'll get a chance to do something with this work, but I'm not sure since I'm here just to research. Um, but something happened to me when I arrived in 2011 and um, it had everything to, 
to do with being in that land, being on that land, being sort of, it was almost like that was where, when I took root and that was when the work sort of took root and could be fully actualized. And um, that work, the Buddhist bug is absolutely connected to um, the land of Cambodia, but being the landscape, but also the moments of engagement with everyday people is another very important thread in the work because it's performance rooted. The photographs and the videos are sort of artifacts of a performative moment. You know, they get carried out um, so that um, the work can be shared on a more global level outside of Cambodia, but it's engagement with everyday people, which is why um, I, I absolutely get excited when the work is re-performed or performed um, in different places. Um, that, you know, there were two different performances that Sarah spoke about at APT8, and one, each one had a very different vibe and a very different um, landscape of people. So at the Water Mall, that because it was set in, in a kind of um, stage-like setting, and there was this metal um, blinds that created this chandelier. It just, it had um, a solitude, a sense of solitude, and almost regalness that I hadn't experienced with her before. And so people had to um, walk, you know, along this bridge that was between this waterway to get to her and they had to be very intentional because we didn't leave a lot of space for people to do that. So they had to kind of walk carefully to get to her. And then um, people had these very strong moments of um, just eye to eye contact with me. It's a silent performance. I don't have arms. So there's no gestures other than what's happening in my face and in my presence and with my energy. And a lot of people, you know, they bowed. Um, so that was strange because I thought, you know, maybe they think this is sort of a deity, which was an interesting take on, on the bug, but you know, she's not a deity. Um, but I had very strong moments with people as if I was seeing them or we were seeing each other for the very first time. Um, it, was a, it was a human level. So even though you know, she's supposed to be this fantastic creature and obviously there's a layer of, of humanness in it and there's a suspension of belief in that moment, but um, this idea of engaging in a way that you see people's humanity is really important and a kind of universality that um, that I wasn't really prepared for in thinking about how particular the work is. Um, and then in uh, the, the, the one by the Bodhi tree was, was, a, was a great opportunity for me to, you know, be in a more natural setting. It was outdoors and the kids just went nuts with that piece. And that was so interesting. And continually in the work, um, in Lyon, the first time it was done in Chicago, in Singapore, the children have a particular interest and curiosity in the bug that is so warming and brings it back to, you know, the element of innocence in this work and um, the overarching ideas of 
religious tolerance, all these sort of very heavy hitting things that are very um, significant right now. It's almost like kids remind you of what's really important in life. And that is having fun, accepting things that may not look like they belong you know, uh, in your world, uh, or in, in this particular case, this creature. And um, it was really amazing. I think they, they tried to tickle the feet, you know, which are, are embodied by somebody else. Um, but the, the sort of the body reacts and so, so do the legs. Um, they tried to feed me grass. Um, you know, they, they got that I might be vegetarian. And then when I, you know, just kind of shook my head. One child said, I think she's full. I really think she's full. <laughs> um, so, and they just look at you with a sense of awe and that awe is different than the awe that was in the water mall. You know, it was an awe that was full of imagination um, and, and, and you can see things playing in their head like, what is happening here and why do I have such a smile on my face? And you were also on your knees, I guess there wasn't that elevation perhaps that, and, you know, That's depending right. on place. So I saw people stopping children going onto the water mall. So that was a very different engagement in terms of, um, you know, a, a paying of respect, as you say. It was, it was very interesting, whereas um, you were seen perhaps more as a nurturing figure wrapped around the tree, um, yeah. at the level of, you know, a toddler wanting to engage. Yeah, yeah you're right. Because yeah. in the water mall, I was coiled in such yeah, a way that did create a little distance from people. And, I, yeah, I stood a lot taller, too. Because it's 100... How long is... It, how long is... Does it, can it stretch out? This, it can this stretch out to 100 metres, yeah. which is so the version long. that was in Lyon. So not your feet. Good point to make. With but. a lot of yoga, I think <laughs> I could do 100 metres. You can stretch that. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I guess... Um, and so when it's not in performance, as you mentioned, the photography and there's the video work um, acting as an archive or a document of the process. But another thread um, is it being she being placed on a mode of transport, which is another interesting aspect. There are some images um, on a flyer that we might hand around just so you can get a, a visual of... Um, what we what is we're talking about if you haven't seen it but um there's a work on here called roll call 2014 which i think is part of the bright space exhibition mm -hmm. so i wondered um just as a starting point of um of the different locations where you you've, you have the bug in the a uh, buddhist bug into the night is a night it's the bug going on a night journey mm -hmm. in this you know some seedier parts perhaps of Phnom Penh but um, you mentioned you also did some uh, rural and daylight and so there's been sort of three series three aspects to this one project mm -hmm, in mm -hmm. particular so perhaps you could just talk a bit about the um, the roll call work yeah, yeah so the roll call is a picture of the bug um, inside a public school for children in Cambodia and particularly in Battambang, which is the second largest city and also the city where I was born. And this particular school is a general public school, a public school for kids um, that is in the birth village within Battambang, which is predominantly Muslim. So um, this Muslim population of people um, 
you know, have to go to general school, public schools. And I selected this school because, you know, we have family in that region that was guiding us through the neighborhood. You just, you can't, um, you know, this is where it like different differs from some of um, people who engage in sort of more national geographic work, which is you can't just go in there and start snapping photos. You know, um, a lot of my work takes a long time because um, we are having several conversations with people and we're trying to find the right guide, the right docent, um, so that you have permission of being there um, um, to, to engage in this work. And so uh, because my family is there and my father is an is seen as an elder of the community and is a patron of the mosques that are there. You know, I had uh, a kind of allowance to do some of the work there that isn't typical, um, typically accepted. Um, but it also took a lot of conversations. It took a lot of showing pictures of earlier works. Um, I wanted to, to do this school image because, um, again, it's, it's, it's about the bug trying to be in places of, of ordinariness, you know, of um, uh, where, where just regular people are, but also in thinking about how the work kind of translates on an international level. I thought it was important to show um, a typical school um, and have both Muslim children and non-Muslim children be in the photo and be engaged in that moment with contemporary art. Um, this particular image, you see the bug. And again, all of this is veiled. You know, I'm talking very seriously about this, but it's all veiled with a sense of humor and playfulness. I mean, essentially, she's trying to figure out if perhaps her place is is amongst these school children. Like, should she go to school like everybody else? Because once she got into this space, you know, she sort of became this, this sort of bow tie wrapping installation, which is a variable that we don't know until we get into the space. A lot of these formations of her body, um, they come out in the moment of you know, spreading her out and figuring out what makes sense for how she uh, occupies these spaces. Um, so this was a very awesome moment of just the kids wanting to be a part of this. And, you know, you only have a few minutes actually to work with children because they get very restless and bored. And this particular experience, we had the teacher there and the teacher were doing real lessons with the children, with the school children and singing songs and stuff because, you know, they were waiting for us to install the whole piece. And because she's a soft sculpture, it's very hard to make her look full and voluptuous without a lot of things in place to help keep that form. But they were very awesome to work with. And those are like the stories that I love coming out of this series, you know, the stories you don't hear um, because the moment is, 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 you know, just that particular moment, but there are, very, there are so many extended moments from it. And that's why I always say that the work is rooted in performance. Mm -hmm. And I guess another aspect that, um, could be from seeing some of the documentation and the photographs and the video work is perhaps capturing a moment in time of change for Cambodia more broadly. But you've mentioned before that you see the works as documentation and archive. Um, 
with through your work, you're a co-founder of Studio Revolt, mm-hmm. um, and I know that there's been a lot of engagement with other artists, musicians, filmmakers in that process. Um, is that also about capturing what's happening now in Cambodia, or a, a, an avenue outside of this other practice to bring in, um, mm-hmm. you know, a smaller community of filmmakers? Um, so Studio Revolt is my collaborative media lab with my partner, um, who was also my collaborator, and he's my husband, um, and he's a filmmaker. And so he's been a really powerful part of the actualization of this work. He helps me take a lot of the video works and helps me with the editing and also takes many of the photo works, although not all the photo works are from him. Sometimes we... Um, I, I work with other photographers. Um, but Studio Revolt, you know, um, launched as a result of being in Phnom Penh, Cambodia and watching this this unfolding of a kind of critical, a small critical mass that was happening in the contemporary art scene, including the rise of filmmaking amongst young uh, Khmer artists. Um, and we just felt like we wanted to be collaborators in what was going on, that we weren't going to be uh, part of, we weren't going to be teachers in this, that there were enough NGOs, there were enough people trying to teach Cambodians how to do things, that for us, it was more about engaging in the moment and contributing um, with the level of experience and production quality that we can bring into um, all of our works. And also, it was about pushing people to see what's possible. I think that in Cambodia, sometimes, um, young people aren't exposed and artists aren't exposed to the possibility of like what you can do with the limited resources you have. Some pe- a few people are very good at it, but some people tend to um, almost self-censor themselves or don't allow themselves to keep pushing that line, that the line of censorship is imagined, right? So because of like, years and decades of what they're being told as what they can't do or what they're not allowed to talk about. This, for me, is a mythology. And we've proven it because we've just been able to push and push and push. And the works that I do in public spaces in Cambodia are, are they take up a lot of room. They take up a lot of space. I can't do it guerrilla style and just, you know, pop it there and then run away when the cops come. So oftentimes we work um, with people to give us the public permission to be there. And and it's, you know, it's been precarious. There are times when we didn't get the permission and it would come, you know, we were ready to go. It would be an hour left and then the permission didn't come through and then we're stuck with what do we do next and where do we go next? But there are always solutions in there. And, and that particular piece is the public square where I didn't get permission to do it. It came very last minute, the denial. And um, um, it, was, it was heartbreaking because we had people through Java Arts, you know, really work hard with um, administrators to try to give us that permission and try to ease everybody's tension that you know, it had nothing to do with politics. Mm. Um, and in the end, they were just for a month telling us it's going to be no problem. It's going to be no problem. Don't worry. And then it would be a week before and then it would be a day before and then it comes down an hour before and they just yanked the permission and said, 
we're not going to let you do this. And then it, it's a, a mad scramble, last minute, um, you know, to go through with it. Because, again, my works involve a lot of people, uh, you know, large objects. Um, and in the end, you know, we found a way. We found a way to get permission at a different site. But that we, that we constantly have to think about. Like, how do you engage um, within a public setting when you know the work is going to be very visible? How do you engage with communities in a way where there is an understanding of the work, even though you may not be able to spell out every single detail of the work, and even though they may not get every nuance of the work, but you're still trying to talk to them about you know, about what it is and about what they're um, a part of. Mm. So, mm. yeah. Um, before we might take some questions, I'm, I'm sort of interested if um, possible to talk about the three video works that are showing at Federation Square because um, one involves the Buddhist bug, I think, but yeah. um, Anita does a lot of other practice. Uh, so. Uh, what are the three works that are showing? So there's a work, there's a beautiful video called Niang Net, which is um, Serpent Goddess, which is a, um, a, a work that's a collaboration between Studio Revolt, uh, My Media Lab, and Khmer Arts. Um, choreographer Sopalin Chiam Shapiro, who is a national treasure of Cambodia, a leading contemporary um, uh, choreographer who, who creates classical dance with new narratives and we there's a it's a really beautiful piece it's one of my favorite works that we've ever done and um the whole thing was shot you know in front of a green screen because we had made a miniature of this heavenly scene that's made of torn paper um and um, oil pastels that that i had colored and so um in that particular piece, my work is as uh, an art director, um, and uh, I hope you'll get to see it because it's a really beautiful dance, um, and you can't see it anywhere else. Um, so this is a really a great moment to see it because it's not online or anything. It's a uh, and and it has a soundtrack. Um, I think it's about three minutes long, um, and it's just beautiful. And you get to see the landscape of Cambodia because we also shot it um, against um, some of the modernist architectural buildings which are slowly disappearing um, a very famous architecture named Van Mullivan we shot in some of his buildings and you'll see sort of this geometric shape against this you know very ornately dressed dancer who has another re re regality about her and then um, it's juxtaposed with this sort of miniature um, heavenly scene that um, that is made of paper. Um, and really it's, it's bringing um, this classical dance form to another audience, an audience that may not get all the nuances that come with classical Khmer dance, but you get the story and you get this visual impact as a result of, of the, the cinema, as mm. a result of that form in filmmaking. Um, the second piece that's there is um, part of my Enter series, and um, you'll see this woman emerging out of the rice field in this black and white dress that sort of is very overflowing, and um, it it her sort of rigidity of that dress is juxtaposed against a very soft green greenery of the rice field and nothing is photoshopped in it and so it just looks like 
uh, a moment that, you know, it was a moment where I danced in the rice field in this ridiculous outfit and then it became a video piece that I wanted to share with the world. Um, and uh, so a lot of my movement practice is coming out of Bhutto um, and, uh, and that, and, you know, and theater and physical theater is something I'm trained in. And so all of those tools have helped me in performance art in, um, in terms of these different moments of engagement and movement work. Um, the third piece that's in there is one from the Buddhist Bug series. It's called Campus Meal uh, Number One. And um, it's a piece where the bug is is being served a giant fish at a campus cafeteria, and she's trying to figure out uh, how to engage with this fish that she's been served. And we're not clear if if this is part of her dietary, you know, um, <laughs> options or not. How scripted are these? Uh, well, back to the bug, the performances. Like, are they obviously scripted in some way, but? How much do you allow that audience interaction and reaction to inform the direction? Well, it actually, it's a lot like Bouteau. You know, Bouteau is um, something that's not fully choreographed, but you kind of know points of, of uh, choreographic climax. You know, you know points that you want to hit. Um, you know, sort of emotional peaks that you want to hit. So we performance art and specifically the Buddhist bug series kind of works in that similar way where I, I sort of go to a space and I know what I'm, I'm wanting to achieve and with Masahiro my partner we know you know the the composition we want to create but the elements of interactivity range mm. the variable of what shape she's going to take ranges in that moment of the one hour it takes to set up um, it just that's when it comes alive and then when she goes live when sort of the camera is on and she's moving in space and in time people are and this this always happens actually you know people see us setting up the whole mm. thing so they, they see my team there and we're talking to neighbors and all the random people that come, the students that are there, and then they see me in my human form. They're talking to me, I'm talking to them. Um, then they see me inserting the person that's the legs. <laughs> they see my team unraveling this bug, taking up the space. And then they see me put on the hood and then it's like magic. It, it's that that look of wonder that's captured on video and that's real. It's this, you know, moment of awe, this moment of witnessing this fantasy that's playing out in front of them and the suspension of belief is something that happens every single time despite, you know, all the apparatus being seen. Mm. And, and I think that speaks to, I think the magic of contemporary art, the magic of um, of allowing people these moments to imagine something that's rooted in a reality, you know, but is a hyper-reality, a, a surreal, a surreal aspect. We agreed that we could probably keep talking for three hours, but I, I might just open it up to any any questions or, or comments or thoughts that anyone had. Yes. 
square, are they on for a certain period of time and at certain times? Um, Anita, might, Anita I think might know the show times. It's 11.30 in the morning. 10, the Federation Square screening times. Do they vary? And I think if you just look up my name in the listing, you'll be able to see the times. Thank you. Sorry, thank you. I was just wondering, Anita, what do you see for the future of the bug? Where would you like her to go? Within Cambodia, another part of Cambodia, another aspect of Cambodia, or beyond? Yeah, so I feel like there may be are just a few more moments that um, that I would like to capture in Cambodia, but I would be happy also if the work closed already there, um, because the night series was sort of the last um, part of the work that I feel really completes the cycle from day to, to night to um, amusement moments to very seedy, you know, serious moments. So. Um, the next phase of it I would really love is I want to see her in um, in the Middle East. <laughs> I would like to really see her engage with sort of the roots of Islam, right? Like uh, the birth of Islam is sort of in the Middle East and especially with things that are happening now, I just would find it really profound for this sort of hybrid creature, which she would be very, very foreign in the landscape of the um, of things that are happening in um, in that part of the world, and so I really would like to see her in North Africa or the Middle East. That's the next phase that would really challenge the work and that would feel appropriate to um, her autobiography. Nita, I wondered if you could talk about um, gender politics. I noticed today you've talked about the bug, despite being a hybrid creature, is a her. Um, can you talk about that? Yeah, so she is actually S slash he. So she's gender fluid. Um, I do use human pronouns because I'm personifying her, but usually when I write and have things written about the bug, it, I say the bug or I say bug. I don't use that except for the S slash H-E. So that's why the legs can be embodied by a male or female, and that's happened multiple times. I have no problem with that. But I think it's, it's, it's good to have something that's more transgendered, as especially when you're talking about religion and spirituality. I just want to be open to that. And so, you know, human language is limiting. Um, so when we're trying to talk about something really fast, we tend to use, you know, the words that we've been equipped with, which I feel is very um, not, you know, not in, indicative, not truly indicative of what I'm trying to do with um, the transgendered element. Yes. Um, 
actually I'm more interested in your practice in Cambodia and how you actually negotiate. You talked about the idea of failure in some of the events that you, or at least some of the performances or events, maybe programming that you try to do in Cambodia. Cambodian art is very, uh, I think it's very fragile at the moment. So the, when failure actually occurs, um, and you obviously become very uh, uh, influential in how this um, area of uh, Cambodian art is developing, how do you negotiate that with the people who are you're trying to influence or work with? Yeah, so um, failure. I, I think... I think that's about perspective. Um, something that we say a lot in Studio Revolt is how do you use your limitations as part of your aesthetics? And that is something we work really, really strongly to do and also the team that we work with, right? Because um, it's not just me and Masahiro, it's, it's our crew. It's our production assistants. It's my my assistant. It's um, the tuk tuk driver. It's you know the um, fixer that's on board, who's a coordinator. Um, and what happens is, you. What's so amazing about creating works in Cambodia, and I think in a lot of Southeast Asian countries, is the adaptability, the the quickness to which you can respond to the changes. And that's really, really, really important. In the public square piece, which is a 24-hour durational piece in which um, I sit at a lit-up square that's about two meters by two meters, because the point of the work was to create I wanted to understand where the public space for engagement, for, for engaged conversations can occur in Cambodia. And the answer is it, there is no public space for that. And so I made my own public square and that I would situate in a public space. And through myself and 22 other artists, we took up one hour each sitting on these chairs. The open chair was open to passers-by, random people, to come and sit and have a conversation with the artists because the artists in Cambodia tend to work in very closed um, environments and are never put out into the public. And so that was sort of my response to what was happening. And I invited various artists. And there's also this idea of who can call themselves an artist and not. And so the people that um, I asked were people who identified themselves as artists and arts administrators, that they were all part of this scene. And so when we didn't get permission for where I wanted it, which was part of the aesthetics I was trying to do, I wanted it in front of this um, iconic um, building. Uh, it's called the, the Central Market. And it's just this amazing sort of uh, remnants of old Cambodia. And I wanted that particular image as part of the image that would capture the documentation, but we didn't get it. And I was so um, horrified by not getting, I, I got in a big fight with my gallerist at the time, <laughs> and there were shattered Down doors, <laughs> and um, it was terrible. The cell phone went flying. My assistant <laughs> is running after me. I'm crying. Everybody's crying. It was just so dramatic <laughs> as most performance artists can be. Um, 
But did you video horrible. it? Did you video it? No, it was so horrible. And I thought it was <laughs> over. I was like, and I have 22 people that are waiting, 23 people. I don't know what to do. This is such a mess. What, what are we going to do? You know, it was, it was really bad. Um, but after a moment of breathing through and people, you know, ner- nerves calming, um, the solution just needed to be let go. Let go of this picture that you're trying to construct of this piece because it's not about that. Like everybody is ready to be part of this and you need to allow this performance to happen because it's more important for the performance to happen and not this picture of what the performance could be. So it's it's sort of thinking through that and then um, having this having people that supported enough to go the extra mile in that one hour span of getting the necessary permission to then do it somewhere else. And thank God we did go through with it because it was really amazing to do that. And again, it just helped in the sense that people saw a struggle I mean, it was raining. It was monsoon season too. And artists endured, like young artists, old artists who have never done durational work like this, endured. You know, the people who were slotted for like the 3 a.m., 4 a.m., 5 a.m. slot, which is the worst slot, you know, came. You know, audiences came. So it was a really powerful moment of doing that. And the same thing with a few other projects. It's it just, you just have to be adaptable to it and let go. And also there's luck. There's like the element of luck in it, you know, of just talking to the right people and having, having this sort of calmness in the process helps because people don't react well if you come in really demanding and righteous. Like that's another thing that I find um, harmful to the process. Um, yes, the police are going to give you trouble, but they just want to be informed of what you're doing, you know, on their turf. And you have to be able to engage in a way um, that sort of honors what you do, but at the same time, trying to push that line of how far they're going to go to help you, you know, achieve what you need to achieve. Um, it is a constant struggle. It's in a lot of the video film production work that we do, we've, we just don't consider it a failure, but we've had to adjust and adapt. The picture we go in wanting to get and the scene that we are wanting to get just doesn't always happen. And you have to be able to easily adjust. So if you, in, so if you come in, which is very Hollywood style, um, US style of composing every scene like the way you want it and being in a very specific production timeline that has to have very hierarchical roles, you will just not survive in Cambodia, you know, or many parts of Southeast Mm -hmm. Asia. You have to be flexible, adaptable, and you have to work in the local vernacular. You have to, have to, have to do that. And um, there has to be this give and take, and that's something we learned and we were schooled at very early on you know, coming in with really ambitious projects and then having to take it easy or instead of it taking a few days to do, it takes two years.
I might, I just wanted, I wanted to ask another question. Um, I mean, Anita's got a, a great website too that you can see a lot of different works, but one work that I was watching a couple of days ago was the 1700% project, Mistaken for a Muslim, which is incredibly powerful. Um, and for me, it was a shift in what I knew of your of your practice. Mm -hmm. um, I just it's a it's a it's only a video work, or have you performed that work as well? I mean, you might need yeah. to describe it briefly, but um, it's, it's it's an interdisciplinary piece. Um, it has a, a wall piece, a gallery okay. piece. Um, it was actually my thesis worked, and it was the reason why I left the U.S. Mm -hmm. like that piece kicked my ass out of the US like that piece I was done with being in America because I was so hurt by the things that unfolded and let me just give you the context of it so the 1700% project came out of this number the statistic 1700% was the rate at which hate crimes against Muslims and people perceived as Muslims um, increased so it didn't increase 200%, it didn't increase 300%, it increased 1,700% after September 11th, 2001. That rate was so astonishing to me, um, and, and this is when I was wearing my hat as a community activist and um, also holding my Muslim identity as a political identity. After 9-11, a lot of things changed very dramatically and continues to change for Muslims in America. And I had friends, parents who were surveilled, who were being um, having hate crime acts um, against, who were being, you know, told very racist things, um, and who were essentially being harmed. You know, a lot of microaggression that happened towards Muslims. But I passed because I didn't wear a hijab, or because people didn't see Southeast Asian people as potentially Muslims. They were seeing sort of more Indian, Pakistanis, Middle East people, whatever their perception is. So um, I created the 1700% many years later. Again, it's like things that are filed in my head, but I had written a poem mm. earlier, and that poem is an original piece that took um, hate crime reports and created a cento. Asento is a hundred lines of found text. So my found texts were from actual hate crime reports that I had created this hundred line poem and it built to a, an absurdity, which mm. is a theme in my work, um, using real language uh, from the hate crime. And so I made this poem. I filed the poem away for a number of years and then when my thesis work came around, I sort of recovered it and I made it into several pieces. One piece was a spoken word video um, which is called 1700% Mistaken for Muslim, which was a line from the hate crime that kept being filed. I was mistaken for Muslim. I'm Sikh, but I was mistaken for Muslim, so this happened. I'm Native American, someone tried to drive me off the road because they thought I was Muslim. You know, so this line kept repeating, and then I created a wall um, in my gallery piece. It was a giant wall of white vinyl text, which was the poem put on the wall. And over the three week period, performers would enact the poem live and take some ink and start to, to stain the wall. So that over time, you could see the words of the poem 
uh, be realized. Mm -hmm. You could see the residual stain on the wall that would mark it darker and darker over time because initially it was white over white. But um, about two weeks into the piece, the work was vandalized. The work was completely defaced by someone who wanted to send us a message that someone there um, in public made these horrific marks on it and circled areas of the text that said, kill all Arabs. So they, would they were definitely sending us a sign that they didn't like this piece. And um, I had, you know, it just, it really hurt me. The, not the actual vandalism, but the response of the school and the gallery. Who d they didn't take responsibility for what had happened and they didn't want to investigate further and they didn't want to have a conversation on it. And so it took the press, it took me going to the press after 48 hours of not hearing back from the school, the deans, um, anybody in my department except for one professor who came out and said there's no tolerance for this at the school. This is really horrific. Um, and that one professor, I'm sure everybody knows, um, she's a stellar academic, Dr. Nora Taylor, who's a huge, um, you know, academic in Southeast Asia, in Southeast Asian contemporary art. Um, anyways, long story short, it was it hurt my soul so much that I had to do, um, I had to go to the press, I had to find counsel representation because it was an act of hate. And so only when the Arab American, you know, legal defense got involved that people started taking it really seriously at the school, that this was a problem and that there was a bigger problem of, you know, issues of diversity and also of just we, what is happening right now. And so I ended up doing a huge community dialogue piece around it with um, people that were not from the school, with professors outside of the school to engage. And it was the most diverse audience ever that came. Um, it was people from all over the city. There were so many Muslims, especially Muslim women in hijab, who came to support and to speak out. And um, people were crying because, you know, it was so painful to see this uh, work be handled in that manner. And so we restained the wall altogether and reperformed the final version of it and just kind of reclaimed the mark and covered up the mark with um, the new stain that we put on top. But hmm. that happened in May of 2010 and I would be given the Fulbright research in June of 2010. I was told that I'm a finalist for the Fulbright. Do you still want to go to Cambodia? I was pregnant and I was like, what am I going to do? And then I was like, I have to leave this country. They hate me. And so that's how I got to Cambodia. Um, but that, that piece is so relevant now. Yeah. It's gotten, yeah. it's gotten huge yeah. hits. Um, on, it's, you can find it online and people keep reposting it every 9-11th anniversary to kind of remind people of the other side of mm. patriotism. Mm. Um, and it also won a really huge award. Yeah. Um, I can so. imagine it's incredibly powerful. Yeah, so um, I think we need to, is there no more questions? We need to. Lucky Cambodia. We should end on our own. <laughs> Another <laughs> note. <laughs> um, 
Yeah. Yeah.